checking out college football on the West Coast. This is Get Off My Pylon, a look at the Pac-12 and more. Part of the College Gridiron Coast to Coast Podcast Network. Here's your host, Matt Zimmer. Welcome to the latest edition of Get Off My Pylon College Football Podcast. This is your co-host, Matt Zemek, along with fellow host, Alex Blau. And wow, that was quite a day of college football on Saturday. Mm. Utah 43, USC 42, but also Tennessee 52, Alabama 49, TCU 43, Oklahoma State 40. Uh, it's it's a it's a day we're going to remember. And, did you uh, see it, that? Uh... Did you see that Tennessee's field, the grass is the turf is currently being sold on Amazon? Not surprised. I mean, they're, they're raising money for the for new goalposts too. So yeah, everything's up for sale. And uh, crazy weekend. Know, they know that people are going to pay for it too. They know that volunteer fans are going to pony up money for it. So uh, the, the money's just going to keep going into those coffers. But yep. uh, just have to say before we get started discussing USC Utah, is that October fifteenth. When you put that on a Saturday, you put October 15 on a Saturday, magical things happen. Not just USC Notre Dame 2005, but all the other amazing games from October 15, 2005, West Virginia 46, Louisville 44 in the multi-overtime game, Virginia upsetting Florida State, Michigan beating Penn State in the final seconds, uh, uh, Wisconsin blocking a punt against Minnesota in the Metrodome in the final minute. Uh, to take Paul Bunyan's axe. All those games happen on October 15th, 2005. And then 17 years earlier, and someone, by the way, someone pointed this out. The three great October 15th college football Saturdays are all 17 years apart. 2022, 2005, and then in 1988, that was Notre Dame 31, Miami 30, Catholics versus convicts, a college football certified classic uh, with a few other really great significant games which happened on that day such as arkansas taking a step toward the southwest conference championship by beating texas 27 24 going to the cotton bowl uh october 15 put it in the 1980s put it in 2005 2022 there's something about october 15th which unlocks the magic of a college football saturday so alex 43 42 this is a game that slipped through usc's fingers um and I think we have to start with USC's defense. You know, the chickens finally came home to roost against yep. an opponent that played well, an opposing offense that played well. We all wondered, you know, what happens when an opponent plays well on offense? Will this defense be able to hold up? It did not. And also Lincoln Riley's very, very curious and, and obviously uh, misguided handling of timeouts late in the game. Uh, Got to start in at least one of those two spots. The floor is yours. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to start with the defense. And um, I mean, you're right. The It all really came full circle for USC fans, seeing this defense perform so poorly. And who do you want to look at? Do you want to look at the linebacker core? Well, you know, sure, they didn't play great, but one could say uh, Shane Lee, still not fully healthy. Okay, you want to look at the D-line? Because sure, the, they could kind of stop the run, but there was absolutely zero uh, rush on Cam Rising and, and no pressure being generated. Uh, but for me, what's really been the staple of this USC defense this year has been the turnover-hungry secondary. And, man, they could not defend anything. They gave up multiple deep balls. Uh, they just bit down on the run game. 
Uh, they didn't stay on their assignments. They could, couldn't create turnovers. Uh, it was just a rough sight to watch uh, from the USC secondary, especially when, frankly, the offense was holding their own. Uh, they weren't perfect, but they were doing enough. We said USC is going to score points, and they scored points. The secondary just could not stop anything Utah was trying to do in the air. Uh, you briefly mentioned the coaching decision. This was the first game where I thought, whoa, is, is Helton back on the sidelines here? Because, I mean, we're seeing penalties that are just killer and, and self-inflicted. Uh, really, I'm thinking about the special teams block in the back uh, that sent back a massive kick return. I mean, needless to mention, the game management, which simply didn't exist at the end. I don't know if Lincoln Riley – uh, was just full-on gambling cards on the table on Alex Grinch's defense holding Utah and not allowing them to score and get a two-point conversion. But they did. And at that point, Lincoln Riley had not used any timeouts that entire drive, and he screwed his offense into zero time. Now, he didn't screw his offense as much as the officiating may have screwed his offense, but that's not what was asked, so I will uh, bite my tongue on that matter for – as long as I can, but Matt, you got a few more minutes until that just comes bursting out. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about that, but let's let's chop up that the the end game management because you know I think there's there's zero question you've got to use at least one timeout more than what he did, you know, because that way you get at least you know a minute twenty five thereabouts for your offense. You have to. Instead, instead there was just forty eight. Now, in defensive Lincoln Riley, forty eight seconds is not nothing. Like there's a difference between forty eight seconds and 15 seconds so he could have thought you know what 50 seconds were, were really okay um but really you have to you have to use one more timeout if you can give yourself uh a, a buck 25 and like you don't need a, all three timeouts for your offense you know you have first you can throw for first downs you can stop the clock that way you know you yeah, don't this need, isn't pro you don't need your full complement of timeouts you know one timeout with a minute 30 left is is absolutely fine and so that that was undeniably bad timeout usage. Now, there is a nuance here, though, that needs to be thought about. Actually, actually, two nuances. One is, you know, was he expecting Kyle Whittingham to go for two? Now, I think I think you because know, most coaches in that situation probably kick the PAT and they go to overtime. So Lincoln Riley was probably thinking, hey, you know, let's let the clock run down so that if Utah does score and tie it. Well, you know they're not going to be able to get a, another possession. It'll go in the final minute, so we either we either get a field goal in the final minute or we go to overtime, where you know USC's chances would have been pretty decent because that offense in, in the overtime format, not a bad place to be. But, but this 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 I think was is the true heart of the whole thing is that Lincoln Riley probably did think that Kyle Whittingham was going to kick the PAT. In end game situations, what what do we always say when we talk about end game management? Maximize your team's options, increase your team's avenues to victory. You know, instead of giving yourself just one path, give yourself two paths or three if you can. And so, the the, the strategy of allowing the clock to go inside the final minute uh, basically said, you know, this 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 game's going to come down to the two point try. And if we stop it, we win. If we don't stop it, you know, we might lose. Now, we'll have some time, but we might lose. But I'm banking that, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not expecting Utah to get eight points. I'm expecting seven. And if they do happen to go for two, well, you know, I trust our defense to make a play. 
That's the rationale, at least. He might not have said it on camera, but in terms of how he handled the timeouts, it amounts to that, right? That like you, you, your, your philosophy is manifested by how you, you manage your timeouts and the resources at your disposal. So the cardinal sin Lincoln Riley committed was not maximizing his team's options. And you have to prepare for the worst case scenario. You have to think things out in terms of the worst outcome that can happen. So the worst outcome that could happen was Utah convert, going for it and making it. And you and Lincoln Riley's handling of timeouts did not uh, account for that. It was not aligned with the worst case scenario. So that's really the thing that Lincoln Riley failed to do. And that's a pretty bad miss. Like there's, there's no doubt about it, that you have to be thinking uh, of the worst case scenario. Now, obviously, you know, by letting the clock run into the final minute, he was thinking, oh, if, if they miss, they don't have enough time to get the ball back because Utah had two timeouts. So he's thinking if, if uh, we stop them with 50 seconds left, you know, that's it. Like that we just recovered the onside kick. Utah calls two timeouts. That leaves 40 seconds. So the third kneel down, that's game. They don't, they don't get a look at the ball. So, I mean, that's probably what he was thinking, or at least that's certainly what his tactics were aiming at. That's not planning for the worst case scenario. And that's where Lincoln Riley fell short. I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. That, that personally didn't, I was under the impression when I watched that game, that just how dominant this defense had been weeks before. And of course this was clearly a different situation. I was under the impression that Lincoln saw this and was just taking a massive gamble. You know, there's there in all his head, there's no way that he stops them and gets, they get the two point conversion, but you know, the worst case happened and uh, the offense couldn't get there in time. That's right. Um, and, and there's another, there's another detail to mention here in terms of why Lincoln Riley should have coached in line with the worst case scenario didn't have Eric Gentry on the field and he got injured no. late in the second half. So if you're thinking, if it comes down to one, two point play, what, what are the odds? What's, what's the likelihood? Well, not having Eric Gentry certainly should shift the odds and the game theory and the percentages toward you. Not being fully healthy. Yep. Yep. So, so it's like same, it, same, same linebacking core. Yeah. So without, without having, a fully healthy defense with your best players on the field, you really need to use your timeouts such that you're prepared for Utah making the two point conversion. So the gentry piece of the puzzle is, is significant. Yeah. I, I believe I said uh, last week, I thought he was arguably the uh, most valuable transfer on this USC team outside of sure. uh, Caleb. No doubt. And that was proof at the end, but Matt, Absolutely. I think it was, I, I can't remember who, it was you, it was me, or it was somebody, it wasn't me, I think it was you who brought up something about the refs uh, in this game. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we, can, we can certainly talk about that. I, I think oh, we can, can we? Because, oh my that. God, Matt Samick, I have not burst <laughs> a blood vessel in my head watching a football game as much as this game. Even the, even the commentator, Brock Heward, sounded Brock off. Brock Heward, yeah. He, he said not Tom just Brady. USD bloggers. Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh. And meanwhile, Oklahoma fans on Twitter are like, oh, these refs are great. And I'm like, okay, let's hold on a second. But they, they easily uh, swayed the outcome of this game multiple times throughout the game. And frankly, this may be, from a USC fan's perspective, the best part of going to the Big Ten is leaving these Pac-12 refs. And that was the only, that was all the worst refs. 
following USC Twitter, as of course I'm paid to do at Trojans Wire, you know, it's my job to look for USC tweets. I mean, like every blog has social media reaction that's just part and parcel of the industry. Like every media outlet does it, you know, you're expected to do it. Um, so like, I need to follow USC Twitter. Most of my feed was, this is why we're going to the big 10. You, you know, bleepity bleeps that, that was like after the game ended, that's all any USC fan could talk about. So like, that's pretty real. And so for people listening to this podcast and thinking that USC is a bunch of whining crybabies, Hey, you know, that might be true, but let's was- be real. Let's be real. The PAC 12 was not able to, was not willing to give USC an unequal revenue share. And you have Larry Scott doing things, you know, if, if people around the United States remember this, remember several years ago uh, with uh, Sam Darnold that USC played a, an overtime game on national television against Texas in September, had to play at Washington State on a Friday the next week. Like imagine yeah. Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, and these other power conferences being treated like that. It would yeah, never, it ever happen. Gone. Only USC under Larry Scott in the Pac-12. So, folks, we're outside the West, outside a USC perspective. This is the kind of baggage accumulated over a decade, if not more, which USC fans have had to live with. So, like, that's why this Utah game was was kind of a last straw. It was at least a defining moment in terms of why everyone at USC is ready to leave for the Big Ten. They are sick of the Pac-12 and not being able to address the officiating. A few things from my end, Alex, in terms of the officiating. Well, hold on. One, one, is, oh, oh, you. One, one is that even if you think the refs didn't decide the game, which is fair, and, and let's let's be very clear here, all right? <clears throat> Cam Rising, Sorry. Utah quarterback Cam Rising, tight end Dalton Kincaid, they played like superstars. They played like they really did. bad dudes. Like they were absolutely unbelievable. They played their very best. It took their, it took the very best games from Utah's quarterback and it's, it's best healthy pass catcher. You know, this is without Grant Queethy who got injured for the season. Imagine if he had been in this game, maybe Utah wins by 14, if that's the case, but that point aside, rising and Kincaid were super duper stars. And I'm certainly not going to walk up to their faces and tell them, Oh, you know what? You actually didn't deserve this. Oh, you, you know, you actually didn't earn this victory. They did like there were plays to be made. They made them under a lot of pressure, like they deserved it. Utah deserved the victory. And yet I can still say that the refs decided the game. And and if people will say, understandably, you know what? You can't hold those two positions. Either the refs decided the game or Utah deserved it. You can't have both. I'm going to disagree on that because like what, it, what is Utah supposed to do uh, after a, a two huge bad calls are made that hurt USC. What's Utah supposed to do? It's supposed to win the game. Like it's it's there, it's out there waiting to be taken. You can either win the game and make use of a break, which happens. I mean, luck is part of sports. You can either make use of the officiating or not. And Utah did. And so that is to Utah's credit, a really good comparative historical example on this. Uh, the 1985 World Series, Don Dankinger making that infamous Clearly bad call at first base in the bottom of the ninth of game six, Cardinals at the Royals, that that call did decide the series. But, but Dane Orge still had to hit the game winning uh, base hit in the bottom of the ninth of game six. The Royals still had to actually cash in that bad call and score two runs to win the game 
to get to game seven. And then Brett Saberhagen uh, still had to pitch a, a, an incredible game seven to win the World Series for the Royals. So I can say, you know what? The, Don Dinkinger's call decided the series and the Royals deserved it because there was a game seven to play. What else are you going to do? You got to win. The same thing with Utah. What else are you going to do? You got to go make the plays, play the game out to the end. And Cam Rising and Dalton Kincaid did that. So I'm going to give them credit and I'm going to say they earned it. But I can still pivot back and also say the rest decided the game. Now, let's 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 go into the details here, Alex. One thing that a lot of Utah fans have said over the past 48 hours is that, oh, but look at all these holding calls that the referees missed. And they did miss a few. And there was one in the end zone that would have been a safety for Utah. No question about it. But they missed one on the Cam Rising touchdown, too, at the end of the game. That was the holding on the two-point play. Absolutely. The, the other thing, though, is holding calls get missed all the time. Like, like, we recognize that. You're looking at a pile of bodies. So you're looking at the left guard instead of the left tackle. You're looking at the left tackle instead of the center, and you miss, you miss an instance of holding. Like, that happens. Things that happen in a pile of bodies in the midst of the action, that's one thing. The other thing is, is that holding penalties are not reviewable. Holding penalties do not get reviewed. Now, I will say to Utah fans this much, that if you have a, a, a challenge system for holding penalties, in other words, every penalty can be under review, like that's a good idea. Like you get, I would say, you get two challenges, not for the, for the whole game on everything. You get two holding penalty challenges. Like if you want to say, you know what, 77 was holding our linebacker, 54 or whatever, in the end zone, I'd like to challenge that. And then you get you have two holding penalty challenges. So maybe like a green flag instead of a instead of a red flag, you know, something like that. Like I'm all for that. Like I and I think more plays should be reviewable, like pass interference should be reviewable. And many people will say, well, then games are going to take five hours. I think that every review, if you can't do it in a minute, you know, then the call stands. But if you can do it within a minute, you make the call, the game goes on. So I think that administratively, you can speed games along in terms of the review process, but yet review every penalty, every call. And so that's what I would say to Utah fans, that we should have, we should be able to challenge bad holding calls. Not everyone, but you get two challenges per game. So then maybe USC would have uh, given up a safety and Utah would have scored two points. But we can play the holding call game all day long. Mario Williams called... Mario Williams was called for a hold when he was just holding his block against a Utah perimeter defender. They still nailed him for holding. That was an egregious miss. We can do that all day long. The roughing the passer, it, certainly with targeting involved, that's a reviewable play. So like there is more focus on the play and there's also more of a chance to get it right because you get, you're able to review it. And so the Pac-12 officials and the, and the replay booth, they, they look over that second roughing call, not the first one, but the second one, which is in the fourth quarter when Utah was about to punt on an incompletion. They looked at it, they reviewed it, and not only did they say, now for, let's, let's be real here, they, they rescinded the targeting, okay? They rescinded it. So in other words, they admitted they were wrong. They admitted they were in error. They kept the 15-yard penalty. For what? There was no helmet-to-helmet yeah. -helmet contact. There was no blow to the head or neck area. What's the penalty for? How do you keep the penalty? For, uh, the, the only way they can justify it is by saying it was late. And it was not late. The, the rule of thumb 
on roughing the passer in terms of a late hit, two steps. If it's fewer than two steps, it's fine. If it's after the second step toward the quarterback, it's not fine. That was before there were two steps. Uh, and John Wellner of the San Jose Mercury News, the Wilner Hotline, he tweeted out uh, late Monday afternoon, right before we went on air with this. He said the second call was absolutely atrocious. He said that the first call was sketchy, but maybe allowable under a textbook reading of the rules. But that second one in the fourth quarter, which really carried especially large leverage, was an absolutely awful call. So if you want to say that, that the idea that the, the refs swung this game to Utah is just a, a bunch of whining, hey, Brock Heward thinks Ooh. it was an objectively awful call beyond the bounds of like a normal missed call, such as holding. John Wilner thinks pretty much the same way. If Brock Heward and John Wilner, among others, are saying, you know, that that was just bad beyond the norm, then what are we left to say? I don't think I don't think it's being a USC homer uh, to say that that was a uniquely bad call, which swung the game uh, from USC to Utah. There were just the, the quantity of uniquely bad calls and the. I don't know if this is a word the blatantism just the, the blatancy the blatantness yeah the, the blatant sure yes of the calls and the holds that they missed was ridiculous it was ridiculous it was frustrating so, certainly I'm from a usc keeping it keeping it censored <clears throat> certainly from a usc perspective i do want to say again though cam rising let's let's talk let's talk a little bit about cam rising because yeah utah's it. offense was stellar i mean i mean i mean they I, were I mean, I mean Cam Rising, you know, he he struggled in the first quarter. Like, I remember there was a third and four. He airmails uh, a wide-open receiver on third and four, and he, he didn't look good. Like, this felt like a continuation of the first half of Cam Rising's season. He just wasn't making the big plays, and USC gets up by 14. You think, well, this certainly looks great for USC. Cam Rising, then in the second quarter, he becomes the 2021 quarterback who was at an absolute stud in second halves uh, last season, like when Utah beat UCLA, uh, scoring 44 points. Just It was a second-half avalanche from Cam Rising. Utah struggled in the first 10, uh, 15 minutes against Arizona State last year. Second-half avalanche under Cam Rising. I think Utah scored 28 straight points uh, against ASU in Salt Lake City last year. This was the same guy. Like, that guy came back. He resurfaced just in the nick of time for Utah. That, that, that was just a big boy uh, grown-up performance from him. And then, again, Brant Queefe out. So you think with, the, with Utah not having its best pass catcher, that the Utes passing game was in trouble and that Utah would not be able to come from behind the way it did. Because Utah is not built to come from behind. At least that's not the usual way the Utes do it. Uh, an analyst uh, on another uh, Pac-12 podcast we follow, uh, the, no, the No Truck Stops podcast, pointed out this was Utah's first 400-yard uh, passing game from a quarterback uh, in, like, over 15 years. So Cam Rising was that special, and Dalton Kincaid was that good of a target yeah. for Cam Rising. Cam Rising was 16 of 16 when he threw toward Kincaid. He, he didn't throw one com incompletion like that's how great the two were together, well, and so like they deserve the they deserve the laurels, they deserve the praise, and they deserve the victory that they earned for their team. Like the, like I see that's the thing. I don't want to rain on their parade. I think we can have a discussion about officiating in one box, and then we can turn over here and say 
Cam Rising and Dalton Kincaid were absolute monsters in this game. They played like they played like all pros, uh, and they deserve the glory. Like that, that there's just no two ways about it. Yeah, I mean Dalton Kincaid, it was really his game to me. I thought Cam Rising was great, but Dalton Kincaid had over half of Cam Rising's yards. As a tight end, 217 yards, ridiculous. Uh, 15, 16 receptions, absurd. The end zone trip, only one was surprising, frankly, because it felt like every other play, his name was being called. Uh, USC defense, whether it was just the linebacking core injury or the DBs playing as awful as they were, had zero answer. It felt, it felt specifically for Dalton Kincaid, even when Cam Rising was, uh, was, was, was kind of teetering. And he wasn't wasn't performing as strongly in the beginning. It still felt like Dalton Kincaid was his guy. Absolutely. Uh, one other note that the Utah offensive line uh, didn't let USC get close to Cam Rising for almost the whole night. And USC's pass rush came into this game, you know, very formidable. Tui Tui Peloto with three sacks against Washington State. No, nope. Utah was able to stonewall him and the rest of USC's defensive front. So really a complete performance by Utah's offense. Uh, making up for for the defense's inability to stop Caleb Williams, that Utah offense raised its game when it needed to. All right, we we on the other side of this uh, ad break, uh, going to talk a little bit about what's coming up ahead in the Pac-12, uh, featuring the UCLA Oregon game, but also going through some Pac-12 championship scenarios uh, flowing from that UCLA Oregon game. That's on the other side of this ad break here at the College Football Podcast, that's known as Get Off My Pylon part of the College Gridiron Coast to Coast Podcast Network. So college football fans, uh, hey, that UCLA-Oregon game, that's a hot ticket. Uh, that Alabama-Tennessee game that we just saw, like that was a really hot ticket at Neyland Stadium. So you're looking for the hot tickets in college football. And we had a, a majestic uh, Saturday, a majestic October 15th once again with these amazing games, these amazing stories. This sport just not does not disappoint. And so you want a ticket to the next really big college football game going on in your part of the country, you know, you want to take advantage of Ticket Smarter and their mobile app. So Ticket Smarter's partner with ESPN Events as an official ticket resale partner. And you make sure that fans all over the country can experience the greatness of college football live and in person. So Ticket Smarter, the advantage of it, you can purchase tickets quickly, securely, and at the best prices on the secondary market. So you wanna to go to the Ticket Smarter mobile app or just go on the web to ticketsmarter.com. And we have an offer for those listening on College Gridiron Coast to Coast, 5% off your purchase of $100 or more with our promo code GRIDIRON22. That's GRIDIRON22 for 5% off an order of 100 bucks or more. And that's not a one-time deal. That's permanently for the whole 2022 college football season, giving you the best selection of college football seats to the biggest games. So check out the selections and pricing now for the next big game just around the corner with Ticket Smarter. And remember the code GRIDIRON22. Think smarter at Ticket Smarter. All right, Alex Blau. So uh, we're obviously going to dive into UCLA, Oregon. But just first, um, with with USC losing to Utah, so what that means in terms of Pac-12 tiebreaker scenarios you know if, if USC had beaten Utah landscape would have been would have been very different Utah would have been eliminated from the race not form not technically but essentially like Utah still cannot lose a second game in the conference no one can afford to lose a second game I think the it's pretty clear that the winner of the of the two teams that make it to the Pac-12 title game 
they're going to be eight and one in the Pac-12. Maybe one team goes nine and zero, oh, but likely eight and one. If you're seven and two, you're likely out of out of luck. So you know th- this this is part of what shapes the stakes for UCLA Oregon in terms of which team has the tiebreaker over the other team. Uh, Alex, we have you know Utah going to Washington State in two weeks, and then Utah going to Oregon in November. And then of course we have USC and UCLA playing in Pasadena. Um, just, you know, we don't, we'll, we'll obviously talk about each of these games when they arrive later in the season. But like, if you had to just look at everything now with the top four teams in the PAC 12, USC, Oregon, UCLA, UCLA being the, the only fully unbeaten team in the conference um, and Utah, like, do you have any kind of sense about where this is going? Do you have a good feel for it? Or are you a mindset of, wow, I don't know how anything is going to go. Like, this is, this is like you know, a you know, blindfolded throwing darts. I I have a general feeling. I feel like Oregon, just based off how the schedule is laying out, USC's real big test left is UCLA at the end of the season. Uh, Oregon, unfortunately, has to play both Utah and UCLA. I don't really see the Oregon winning both those games. Uh, so I think Oregon is is going to be the first team to kind of be left out, and we can see that as soon as this weekend potentially. Um, <clears throat> as for the other three, I I, I think it's going to be USC UCLA come the end of the season. We're going to see a repeat of that last game. Uh, but if if UCLA takes a loss to Oregon this weekend, I would not be surprised if USC Utah is the final matchup we have to see for that Pac-12 championship again, uh, which may end up working in USC's favor. I mean, if USC does get the Utes a second time, it won't be in Salt Lake City, so, th- so that much would certainly be true. All right. Uh, that much, and, get- oh, Wait. Uh, well, I was also thinking, you know, uh, realistically looking to see, is there a Pac-12 team that can represent in the college football playoffs this year? Clearly, UCLA is the front runner now. Um, but if not them, I, I think USC, if, if USC runs the table, uh, and then gets another shot at Utah and, and and gets to beat Utah. Of course, there's a lot of other things that have to happen. You know, Tennessee would probably have to run through the SEC. Uh, but if all, you know, if you roll the doubles and all goes well, uh, USC facing Utah again with only one loss could be just what this Trojan team needs. Yeah, well, all right. You know, I, I, I'm reluctant to talk about playoff uh, before November, but just, just to explain pretty briefly, <laughs> the Jim Mora line, uh, you know, just yeah, a, a Pac-12 team under under these circumstances has to be unbeaten. I mean, I, I just, you know, 12, a 12-1 12 Pac-12 team with Tennessee now being in the mix, that, that path is really narrow. Like, you know, t- let, you know, and we could have a scenario where Tennessee – you know, loses to Georgia. That's probable because that game is uh, is in Georgia, I believe. Uh, and then uh, Alabama wins the SEC West and uh, and uh, beats uh, Georgia uh, in the SEC championship game. That's certainly very possible. I don't know if it's likely, but it's certainly possible. You could have three one-loss teams in the SEC, which is the nightmare scenario for everybody outside the SEC. Uh, Outside the SEC, exactly. Ohio State and Clemson would have to go unbeaten. Uh, they, they could not afford to lose a game if we get that scenario of Tennessee finishing 11-1, and one, uh, Georgia going 12-0, and 0, and then losing to 11-1 and one Alabama in the SEC title game. That, that means you have 12-1 and one Bama, 12-1 and one Georgia, 11-1 and one Tennessee. 
you're not getting a Pac-12 uh, team into the playoff unless it's UCLA at 13-0. and 0. And, uh, you know, that is obviously going to be a very, very difficult uh, thing, thing to happen. I think 12-1 and 1 USC, not going to get in. And one of the big things, Alex, is uh, to, to touch on this very briefly uh, as part of our coverage of Western college football here on Get Off My Pylon, Stanford beat Notre Dame. Like, like Notre Dame is Notre Dame is bad. Notre Dame is at the very least below average. Like, I don't think you can call Notre Dame mediocre. I think Notre Dame is below average, worse than mediocre. When you lose to Marshall, when you lose to Stanford, um, like th- that's you know you're, you're not even average when you do that. And so USC is not going to get the bump from beating Notre Matt, Dame. Matt, 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 what if what if Tennessee runs through Georgia? runs through everyone. Ohio State runs through Michigan and Penn State. Uh, and Clemson stays undefeated. USC runs through UCLA, a top-ranked, and then meets a Utah again and runs and, you know, beats them in the Pac-12. I could see a, a few things going right. Uh, I see. I could see you ending up with a number one Tennessee, uh, Ohio State, Clemson, USC. And of course, that's the, the least likely. If there's a few things that have to go right. But I, I feel like it's still slightly possible. Well, it, you know, I mean, USC, if USC goes 12 and 1, it would need Ohio State, I think, and, and Clemson and one, one of the other SEC teams, Tennessee. Alabama, Georgia, to lose twice. And we're really, yeah, we're ten, well, Tennessee would have to, Tennessee would have to beat Georgia and Bama would have to lose again. Well, and Tennessee would beat Alabama in the SEC championship game. So, like, Tennessee going 13-0 and would knock out Bama, and it would put Georgia uh, on the ropes. Uh, but Georgia would, Georgia would still be 11-1, and yeah, Georgia, Georgia would need to lose a second time. So, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, with USC in the playoff, it was never supposed to be year one. Never. Like, no, that's, that's no serious analyst ever said playoff. But making the Pac-12 championship game – playing in a new year's six bowl like that's that's was in play and that is in play and it'll be fascinating to see uh how that goes all right we're going to talk about ucla oregon next promise but we have one more ad break here on get off my pylon so college football season hey it's not just underway it's halfway over that's kind of depressing but we do have a month and a half more of the regular season and bowl games are two months away like mid-december bowl games are two months away so did you know that BetUS has been pioneers in the college, in the sportsbook industry, college football, pro, anything you, you want, for over 25 years? So BetUS has been thriving, paying loyal customers quickly and securely. So we want you to go to BetUS.com and take advantage of an offer we have here at College Gridiron Coast to Coast. You'll receive 125% in a sign-up bonus by using our code COAST22. That's COAST22. Put $100 in uh, to bankroll your, your account at BetUS, you get an additional $125 to play with. You put in $200, you get $250 back, and so on and so forth. BetUS also has the NFL, the MLB playoffs, so we're now in the League Championship Series. Uh, NBA starts this week. NHL is just underway. Any other sport you can think of, hey, we have the World Cup not too far away uh, in about 50 days, uh, you know, a month and a half. Um, so, you know, anything under the sun, bet us is the place to be. Now we, we want you to know that as a college football fan, you know, you, you want that college football action. 
at BetUS. So just keep in mind the 125% match bonus for initial signups with the code for College Gridiron Coast to Coast listeners, Coast22. That's Coast22. BetUS. You bet, you win, and you get paid. All right, Alex, let's round out the show with just an all-in focus on UCLA, Oregon. College game day is going to be there. Um, and I think the, I think one of the main plot points, I'm going to ask for your overview of this game, but just to kind of set the scene here in Autzen Stadium, the big Pac-12 games of the year so far, home teams have held serve. Uh, U- yeah. UCLA <clears throat> beat Washington, UCLA beat Utah, both at home. Utah took care of USC at home. Uh, so now Oregon get, gets that home slot in Eugene against UCLA. And so as I ask for your overview of the game, you can go in any way you want, but just, you know, how much uh, weight are you assigning to the reality of home field in the Pac-12 this season? Massive, especially when you look at it, you know, no teams really played well on the road. Oregon's held it down on home field, but UCLA hasn't really played a, played a road game. They played one road game. I guess who it was, you know who it was. Give you a hint. They just got their first win. <laughs> That's right. Colorado uh, embarrassed Cal. Yeah. So UCLA, I they haven't played a real away game yet. Um, Oregon has been pretty steady at home, especially offensively. They've been able to really, really move the ball at home. Um, and and frankly, a lot of Pac-12 teams have had struggles on the road since the first week. And I, I don't think UCLA has been tested, and I don't really know what to what to expect, but I, I don't see them really coming away with the win against Oregon this week. In terms of the matchups, what, what do you think is, is the matchup that gives Oregon, you know, a, a really good chance against UCLA? So, like, not, not talking about home field or the intangibles, but actually just looking at the caliber of each roster and, and why the Ducks might have an edge over UCLA. You know, a lot of it is going to come down to, frankly, Oregon's defense being able to make UCLA's, what they've been real steady recently, just make them a little uncomfortable, which I don't think a team uh, has been in the right position to do. Oregon's offense, we've been seeing uh, steadily get better and better as the season goes on. Uh, but so is their defense. You know, three weeks ago, their defense gave up a lot of points to a Washington State team, Cam Ward. Uh, but since then, they've only played Arizona and Stanford, but their defense has been able to limit them to 20-ish, 25 points a game. Uh, and if your offense can do 49, why not? Now, sure, this is a next caliber offense they're going to see, but I still have faith in the Ducks. Uh, you know, DTR against Bo Nix. I mean, that, that's a natural point of comparison, the two quarterbacks in this game. And, uh, you know, well, one thing one thing that, that stands out to me is that, I mean, not just that DTR hasn't faced a road test, anything like this, but when Bo Nix had his road test, I mean, he came up huge late in the game, but he also threw a pick six in the first half, uh, which put Oregon, uh, you know, behind schedule against Washington state. That's what helped Washington state build a 12 point lead with four minutes left. So, you know, it's, it's a big stage for Bo Nix and he, he hasn't, he wasn't competing for sec championships uh, at Auburn uh, because you had Nick Saban there uh, at Alabama to, to stand in the way. 
So this is this is clearly the biggest game that Bo Nix uh, has ever played. And you know, do you think that Oregon should be any bit concerned about how he's going to handle this particular moment, or do you think that the matchup against UCLA's defense is something that's going to settle him down and just enable him to establish a great rhythm from the get-go, and it's going to be a smooth ride for for Bo and the Ducks uh, uh, this upcoming weekend? Well, relative. In the beginning, you, you were talking about comparing DTR and Bo Nix. The way that Dorian Thompson Robinson's playing right now, I I'm not sure they're comparable. I, you know, we 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 definitely you and I I think both hold Bo Nix in a higher regard than when we started having these conversations weeks ago. Um, but uh, I definitely don't think he's playing at the same caliber level from what, as we're seeing from the Bruin QB right now. That being said, what does a steady game for Bo Nix playing a UCLA defense? I think Oregon can ask a little bit less from him and still find success than UCLA, which is going to be very DTR dependent, I feel like, uh, to beat this Ducks defense. So no, so you think that Chip Kelly is going to lean on DTR and not Charbonnet? So you think he's going to throw to set up the run and really try to spread Oregon out before trying to pound Charbonnet between the tackles? I, I think, yeah, I, I think DTR opens up a lot of doors for Charbonnet. One of the things about the UCLA-Utah game, UCLA 42, Utah 32, DTR didn't run a lot. You know, he was just smoking Utah as a passer from the pocket. That's part of the evolution in DTR's game, that he has a complete arsenal in terms of his skill set. He's able to beat you from the pocket. He's able to beat you as a runner. You know, some of these running quarterbacks or these dual threat guys, think of Anthony Richardson at Florida, they're really good runners. Jaden Daniels as well, really good runners. But if you make them pass, they're not always going to beat you. DTR really seems to have it fully solved as a passer, as well as a runner in the pocket, as well as outside the pocket. Do you think that UCLA needs DTR to be a, a, a significantly effective running quarterback to win this game? They didn't need him to run, to run against Utah. Do they need him to run against Oregon? When it comes down to, you know, close perimeters and especially plays in the red zone when the field has shrunk a little bit, I think so. Uh, but no, to my earlier point about DTR opening up the run game, that comes from his passing. Uh, uh, you know, when you have defenses who are looking for the quarterback to take off, I think that really damages uh, the rushing attack because, you all, you know, linebackers are already on their toes ready to come downhill. Um, when you can just dominate through the air and spread out the defense, they're nervous. They're, they're going to be looking to drop back early, and that's when he not only becomes effective as a runner, but the whole assembly and, and, and the whole committee of tailbacks can start eating. One more thing on this game. I mean, this is Chip Kelly going back to Oregon, but, you know, you know he's been – he's coached in Autzen Stadium as a visitor with UCLA before. So, like, that's – that is not new. What is new is Chip Kelly coming to Oregon with his team playing like his old Oregon teams. Like his UCLA teams did not recall 2011, 2012 Oregon until this year. So it's a different vibe with UCLA. You know, UCLA is the only unbeaten team left in the Pac-12. Um, you know, do, do you think that, uh, that Chip Kelly is going to, you know, 
lean into this game in terms of like, does, do you think he empties the playbook or do you think he also takes the view of, you know, I'm just going to do a few simple plays. Like I'm going to, I'm going to just do the basic plays. And I'm going to trust my offensive line to pound Oregon into submission. I'm coming in with a phys- a game plan, which tries to uh, work toward my physical offensive line and play the game through them. Or does he think, you know what, this is like, this is a huge moment for me. It's a huge moment for UCLA and my players. I need to absolutely empty the grab bag. Do you think Chip Kelly yeah, goes I, really exotic, or do you think he just tries to keep it simple and trust the athleticism of his players? I think Chip's got a chip, and you know he 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 can't really he doesn't have a chance for revenge on the Eagles. Uh, he doesn't have a revenge for for or a chance for revenge in the pros. What he's got is finally a meaningful game he's in against Oregon. And uh, he's got a chance to put on a show with a UCLA team that, frankly, their blueprint looks closer and the way they're playing looks closer to one of his Oregon teams uh, than Oregon does. I think he's going to really put on a show. I think he's going to open up the playbook. He's, it's going to be a spectacle, and he's really going to try to just blow them out and show them, yeah, this is, a, this is what I've done down south in L.A. Miss me? It's going to be something. And uh, we, we do want you to, uh, you know, hey, I'm at Trojans Wire, but I just want to get in a word for my, my colleagues at Ducks Wire, uh, Zachary Neal, Donald Smalley, Andy Patton. You do want to follow their work all through the week to get additional quality content and analysis on Oregon versus UCLA. It's the game of the week in college football, the game of the week in the, in the Pac-12. USC fans, Utah fans, are definitely going to be interested in the outcome. So you want to follow Duckswire for, for all of that. Alex Blau, hey, an amazing weekend, a colorful weekend, an exciting did you say weekend. An, did you just and say an amazing weekend? It was, uh, it was an okay weekend. Well, t- Tennessee, Alabama is certainly not a game that we're not going to soon forget. And for those in, the, uh, in Texas and, the, and in Oklahoma, not going to forget that TCU-Oklahoma State game. Hey, you want to follow that TCU Oklahoma State game and the analysis of that classic with our friend Tyler Jones. Uh, he does the Big 12 Breakdown, which is part of the College Gridiron Coast to Coast Podcast Network. Uh, you want to check out Alex Blau's favorite Gridiron uh, co- College Gridiron Coast to Coast podcast, Pigskin and Burnt Ends. Patrick yes, Nether is going to have plenty on that Alabama-Tennessee game. And then, of course, Yards and Stripes on the Academies, Florida Football Sweet Insiders. Time. Florida Football Insiders with Jason Powers on the Clemson-Florida State game, the LSU-Florida game, as well with the Gators, um, and and all the other podcasts. Mark Rogers' Big Ten Paradigm on Penn State-Michigan. You want to follow all the podcasts that are part of the College Gridiron Coast to Coast podcast network. Uh, The RSS feed is at Red Circle, so when a new episode drops, such as Get Off My Pylon, uh, that's every Tuesday. You'll just be able to see that that episode in the feed and listen. And for all the other episodes that drop each week, that's where you want to go. You want to go to Red Circle. But, hey, if you you like listening to your podcast at Spotify, uh, at Google, at Apple, you can find College Gridiron Coast to Coast there as well, too. So for my partner in crime, Alex Blau, this is Matt Zemek. Thank you so much for listening to Get Off My Pylon. We will see you next week.